happen where uh, your coworker walks into the lunch table and they've given up desserts and carbs. They're on a keto diet and they try to tell you how everyone else should be doing the same thing. And if you don't, you're like the scum of the earth until you become a keto devotee. Well, that's the kind of person who you don't really want to be around. Just because they gave up carbs doesn't mean that everyone else should. Well, the same thing happens in the church, and that's essentially what's happening in Romans from both sides of what's going on here. So one side is saying, we've given up eating certain kinds of meat and really eating up all meat. We're vegetarians, and we've given up drinking wine, and um, we want you to do that too. And the other side says, well, we've given up adherence to kosher food laws, and we want you to give up that thing too. And both sides are pretty much saying the other side needs to give up the exact same thing that we gave up. And Paul goes on to show in Romans 14 and 15 that that is not the Christian way. That is insistence on your own agenda, your own preferences. And Jesus didn't insist on his own way. Instead, he gave up his own agenda to really take on insult and to bring about redemption and peace and harmony. So if we're ever tempted to enforce our giving up of something on someone else, we need to just know we're not walking in the way of Jesus. Um, our, our insistence that people do what we do will not lead to peace in the assembly. So that's what we want to avoid. That's what we'll consider this morning. Now, in our previous lesson, we considered conscience, and I defined it as a person's self-conscious judgment about what is right or wrong. We don't have a little cricket that accompanies us wherever we go that's guiding us and telling us what to do. Um, we don't have a part inside of us that is not us, that is our legislator and guide. Instead, we just have us. We have our inner person self-consciously involved in moral reasoning, rendering moral judgments about actions that we have taken that then shape the way we live as we go forward. So this is a hard concept to grab onto because we talk about the conscience as if it's something outside of us or a part of us that's not really us and we just need to follow it because it's our guide. And I argued that our conscience can't be our guide. Our conscience is more like a low-level court judge that renders a judgment about whether what we just did is right or wrong. But we still need to submit to the ultimate judge God, who's the only one who can declare what is good and evil. Now, we can have our conscience informed. We can have our moral reasoning informed through the scriptures, through the practices of other Christians. We're informed in a variety of ways, but we can't trust our conscience to be our guide or our God. We need God to be our God. We need the scriptures to be our guide. Otherwise, we will make the same mistake of, as Adam and Eve, who wanted to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to arbitrate between what is right and wrong so that they could be just like God. That's the temptation of the serpent. So we need to avoid that. I think Christians unconsciously fall into that same trap as Adam and Eve, saying, I want to be the one who determines what's right and wrong, not just for me, but also for everyone else. Instead, we need to submit ourselves to the scriptures. And that um, means that we are going to make provisional judgments about what is right and wrong. And we'll be open to having those reformed as we learn more about God and his way in the world. Does this all make sense? So I'm not saying that there's no place for making moral judgments. We need to make moral judgments. 
but they need to be informed moral judgments, and we need to be open to the reality that our con- our consciences, our moral reasoning is defectible. It can go wrong. It can go bad. So the best thing is not living according to your conscience, but allowing your conscience, your moral reasoning, to be shaped by God, the Spirit, and the Scriptures. There are plenty of people who lived with a clear conscience, people like Hitler, for example, who was quite determined that what he was doing was right, was morally good. Well, his conscience was misguided. All of ours can be misguided as well, and so we need the scriptures to shape us. So we're turning our attention to one of the, well, let me back up a second. When we think of then of conscience, putting our conscience to work, our moral reasoning to work, we often think of what we would call conscience issues or disputable matters. I am, as the youth say, not a fan of the term conscience issues because our conscience is at play in every action that we take. We're always involved in moral reasoning. So for that reason, every issue is a conscience issue. Every act that you pursue, every way that you take is a conscience issue because your moral reasoning is working. So I want to talk in terms of disputed matters, those things that Christians disagree about, that we are more actively um, involving our moral reasoning on and coming to different conclusions than someone who sits down the row from us on Sunday. So, But even there, when we start talking about disputed matters, I'm concerned that we think there's only one category of disputed matters. So then we try to navigate every disputed thing in the precise same way when that actually shouldn't be happening. So I want to propose four different kinds of disputed matters, four categories, and this morning we'll consider category one. But category one disputable matters are those things that God explicitly permits, but doesn't require. So he doesn't require people to do a certain thing, nor does he prohibit a certain thing, but that thing is explicitly permitted. I'm concerned that many Christians, when we talk about disputed matters, and we apply Romans 14 and 15 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, we do so to issues that God has not explicitly permitted. That's a problem because we, we use a text in an inappropriate situation. We become like all of Job's friends who say true things at the wrong time, and it leads to God's judgment rather than God's approval. So I want you to consider, when you talk about disputed matters, are you talking about something that God has actually permitted explicitly or prohibited explicitly? And if not, it's not a category one or category two matter. I'd say this is almost every issue that Christians debate in our Western context. So if the debate is over whether or not you should wear yoga pants in public, I'm saying that's not a one or two issue. God never talked about yoga pants. Now, he did, in principle, talk about modesty. So we might have a category three issue. Now, if the issue that you're considering is whether or not the guitar on the platform should be plugged into the speaker system or not, I want to suggest that is not a category one, two, or even three issue. I think probably that just falls according to your preference, you know, what you're interested in. Um, is your personality big and outgoing? Well, maybe you want louder music. Is your personality like, leave me alone? I don't want to be involved in anything. Well, then you just want everything quiet and maybe you don't really want to sing loudly. Whatever the case is, I think it's prudent for us to identify what kind of disputed matter we're dealing with so we can navigate it rightly. We, we shouldn't 
um, conflate these, combine them all into one. Does that make sense before I move on? Okay, this, this is an important uh, thing for the rest of our lessons because if you don't agree with me that there are different kinds of disputed matters, then you're not going to grab on to what I'm trying to do over the, the next four weeks. But if you can agree with me, then, then you'll start to say, uh, maybe the thing that I am upset that other people are disagreeing with me, what, whatever that thing is, maybe I don't have the grounds to be as confident about it as I think I do because God actually hasn't spoken directly to this, even though I've been pretending that he does. Probably not intentionally, but we all do that. All right? Okay. So we're going to look at Romans 14.1 through 15.13 because this is the key text for category one disputed matters. Now, I'll remind you the term conscience never appears here, but it does appear in Romans 13 when God tells you to obey the pagan government. Why? Because they have the ability to exercise judgment, the sword, and because of conscience, because your conscience will judge you for not obeying the government. So that's the real conscience text in Romans. Romans 14 and 15 is a disputed matters text that has to do with peace in the community. Still, it's tangentially related, so we'll dive into it. We won't be able to go through the whole handout that I gave you. So I attempted to do this week was to write you a brief commentary on Romans 14.1 through 15.13 that you can examine to uh, think about this more. So you'll be most helped by not trying to follow along in the notes. I'll kind of do that on the screen. You'll be most helped by having your Bible open in front of you so you can see the verses that I'm talking about as we go through them. But before we get there, I need to give you a framework for interpreting Romans 14.1 through 15.13. First, we need to remember that Paul has soundly refuted the notion that adherence to old covenant legislation and practices is necessary for identity as the people of God. So Torah obedience will not make you one of God's people. He spent 12 chapters arguing this. But the problem is, when we start reading Romans 14 and 15, we forget about all of that, and we're like, man, Paul is really down with Torah observance. Well, maybe the reason that he is being so hard on the strong and not really throwing down on the weak, we'll talk about that later, is because he's just thrown down on the weak for 12 chapters. Well, you have to keep that in mind. He, he's really directed his attention to people who might confuse Torah obedience with belonging in God's kingdom and justification from sin. He said that can't do. So when we get to Romans 14 and 15, he shifts his focus a little bit because he's already spent the majority of his time talking to the other group. Second, Paul apparently concludes that the, the disputes referenced in Romans 14 and 15 do not threaten anything that he's already written. So people who are uh, maintaining vegetarian diet, who are observing holy days, these people are not doing so because they think that they'll find justification from sin. If they were, Paul would talk to them like he talked to those people in Galatians. So if the weak in Romans 14 and 15 were saying, yeah, this adds to the gospel, Paul would throw down on them. He, he would have no place for that. So that's not at what's stake. What's at stake is a matter of preference in living, um, what might even be called prudence in living, and we'll get into the reasons for why someone might live according to Torah, even if they believe it's not necessary for salvation or inclusion in the people of God. Third, 
um, this is exactly what I'm saying. In some situations, it seems that primarily Jewish Christians demanded that Gentile converts adopt Torah practices as a prerequisite for belonging. So in those instances where Jewish Christians said, Gentiles, you need to observe Torah, all of the apostles said, no, that's not true. In fact, let's have a council and send out letters saying that Gentiles don't need to obey the Torah to belong in the people of God. That's Acts 15. In other situations, where it seems that the Gentile Christians are in the majority, they were demanding that Jewish Christians discard all of their Torah practices in order to belong. So it's the same error, it's just the opposite one. We're adding something to what God requires for you to belong in the people of God. In these instances, it's the Gentile Christians that will get thrown down on. That's what's happening in Romans 14 and 15. The primary issue in both instances is the placement of a stumbling block on the way to Christ and his kingdom. Either the stumbling block of Torah observance or the stumbling block of Torah renunciation. So when you hear the term, don't be a stumbling block, that could apply to either party. It's actually in Romans, applied to both parties. Neither of them should put something in the way of another Christian belonging among God's people and um, coming into the kingdom of Christ. Now, we're going to have to work hard to apply that to our church because I think in the modern Western world, the stumbling blocks that the church puts on the way of people who are wanting to come to Christ are stumbling blocks that command them to take on certain practices that Christ hasn't required at least in the world that I grew up in. So in the world that I grew up in, if you were truly going to belong in the church that I went to, you would wear a suit and tie to church. If you were a man with long hair, you would cut that and you would shave your beard. Um, If you were a woman, you would not wear pants on a Sunday. You would wear a dress. Well, I want to suggest that in our Western context, modern American and especially conservative church context, the stumbling blocks that we put out are actually the opposite of what we tend to call stumbling blocks. So I always grew up hearing a stumbling block is listening to the Beatles because someone might think that Christians would listen to the Beatles. Well, that that would actually be a stumbling block for a Christian to say, if you're going to become a Christian, you must stop listening to the Beatles and you must start wearing suits and ties. Do, Do you see how like the tables get flipped a little bit when we get into the application? All right. Um, Paul, in this section, is going to emphasize that the strong, who are in the majority, give special care to the way they relate to the weak, who are in the minority. And however we're going to apply this text, we need to identify who are the minority and the majority, and can we actually identify ourselves as the weak and the strong? I want to suggest the answer is no. Unless you are saying, I am coming out of Judaism, and... I am being, I'm dealing with the issue of Torah observance. That's how Paul uses this language. We're not in that context. So don't overly or too quickly identify as the strong or the weak based on whether what you do is more permissive according to some or more restrictive according to some. Those categories don't line up. They're not parallels. Fourth, Paul emphasizes unity and peace without requiring uniformity. He permits a surprising amount of diversity, allowing both for restrictive Torah observance, as long as it doesn't threaten the gospel, and allowing for permissibility, Christian freedom, 
because Christ has genuinely declared all things clean. He says these two things can dwell together in unity, even though it won't be uniformity. Fifth, although Paul gives greater attention to the strong in his appeals to them to welcome the weak who were in the minority, he also charts a path for the weak to become the strong through the expression of his own convictions that nothing is inherently unclean. So although he permits Torah-motivated vegetarianism and holy day observance, he does indicate that the weak should position themselves to perhaps someday grow out of this and to become strengthened in the faith. If Paul wanted these individuals to observe the Torah forever, I don't think he would have used a negative term to describe them. But he calls them weak and not strong. He wants them to become strengthened in Christ over time, but he does not want them to prematurely bear a load that they don't have the strength to bear. So he tells the weak to hold off on putting this load of freedom that should not be burdensome on them until they've become strengthened in Christ and can bear it. Fifth, or sorry, that was fifth. These are important things that we need to have in mind if we're going to hear this text rightly, because I think it's talked about so wrongly on a regular basis. Um, So here's my concise commentary. I just want to walk through this text. I'd encourage you just to have your Bible out. I'm not going to read this word for word. I'm just trying to hit the highlights so that we can get to a couple of case studies and think about how to put this text into practice. Paul leads by exhorting the majority group to welcome the minority. Welcome anyone who is weak in the faith, but don't argue about disputed matters. So welcome them, but don't welcome them so that you can debate them and get them to do exactly what you do. The point is that the Jewish Christians in this context in Rome were in the minority, and they weren't feeling welcome. So the strong needed to go beyond their comfort zone to welcome the weak, and to do so without quarreling with them, without requiring them to change their practices for belonging in the church. They needed to have a positive, hospitable attitude towards the weak. Now, significantly, the weak person is described as weak in faith, indicating that they're at an early stage in their development. So this is someone who is immature, who is young in the faith, who doesn't have the knowledge to be able to um, live as a mature Christian yet. So the strong need to bear with them. They need to recognize it. So I think a good analogy is in the way that some of you deal with your children. You recognize there's just some things that they can't handle. And you don't force that on them until they've matured enough, they've grown, they've strengthened. Well, that's how Paul wants the Gentile Christians to relate to the Jewish Christians. Now, a brief side note, for the sake of ease, I'm saying Jewish Christians are weak and Gentile Christians are strong. It's probably a mixed bag. Paul identifies with the strong, and he was a Jewish Christian. Um, But it also seems that there were some Gentile Christians who were convinced to be most like Jesus, we should be as Jewish as possible, including obeying Torah. So um, in Romans 2, Paul says, if you want to call yourself a Jew. So some of these commands against Torah observance for salvation are probably directed towards Gentiles who think, I want to be like Jesus. Let me live like a Jew. Well, it's a mixed bag, but for the sake of argument and clarity, I'm going to just say Gentile Christians strong, Jewish Christians weak. There are some people in each category. Um, 
So I would say that these Jewish Christians, these weak, aren't so much in danger of legalism as they are a failing to mature in the faith. If they were in danger of legalism, Paul would have thrown down on that, as he just did for Romans 1 through 12. Let's not forget that. Instead, they're in danger of, um, if there is a danger, of not growing in the faith. One reason they wouldn't grow in the faith is because they aren't being welcomed into the Christian community. So Rosner notes that Paul does not care if people keep observing Torah. He doesn't see this in this instance as a threat to the gospel, but he does label it as weakness. It's something that should be compensated for at a minimum and strengthened over time. So then Paul in verse 2 identifies the uh, disputed matters. Um, The first disputed matter is that of eating meat. So apparently the strong person believed that he may eat anything while the one who is weak eats only vegetables. Here we need to refine our understanding of the weak person. I I think that most of us would say the weak person is someone who thinks they need to obey Torah. But it actually goes beyond that because the Torah doesn't command vegetarianism. So what's going on here? If Torah allows eating meat, why are these Christians demanding a vegetarian diet? This is this is my guess. And um, nobody knows. Okay, we're we're reading in between the lines. It's like listening to one side of a phone conversation. Um, And I think that I have a pretty good guess here, and I think I can defend it as we go, Um, but it's not one that I commonly hear. It seems to me that Jewish Christians may have wanted to maintain obedience to Torah paired with a particular interpretation of their situation, not an interpretation of the Old Testament. As the minority in the church, and certainly the minority in Rome, these Jewish Christians may have drawn parallels between their situation and that of Israel in exile, particularly depicted by figures such as Daniel and his friends. So Jews in pagan contexts, in exile contexts, sometimes found that vegetarianism was the simplest way to avoid eating meat that was not kosher. So I want to suggest that they saw Rome as the new Babylon. They're not alone in doing that. The Apostle John in Revelation calls Rome Babylon as well. So for this reason, these Jewish Christians may have thought the the most faithful way to express our Christian identity is by imitating the life of Daniel when he was in exile. What that means then is when these Jewish Christians insisting on a vegetarian diet, on abstaining from wine, on observing certain holy days, perhaps even on praying towards Jerusalem, the, the reality is that probably whenever they would go visit their family in Jerusalem, they would have no problem adding meat back into their diet or, or wine or not insisting on the observance of holy days. It's shaped by their exilic situation, not by their interpretation of the Old Testament or their understanding of how Christians must live in every place just while they're in exile. So I want to say that the weak Jewish Christians are Danielic. They're looking at Daniel as the example of how to live in exile. I want to also suggest that the strong Christians agreed, yes, we're in exile, but we're looking to Jeremiah as our example. Jeremiah wrote that this exile isn't going to end quickly. So don't worry about ascetic Torah observances. Instead, in in Babylon's flourishing, you'll find your flourishing. In Rome's flourishing, you'll find your flourishing. So go to work, put down roots, Live life to the glory of God, enjoying the freedom that he has given you even while you're in exile. Don't don't live um, like Daniel did. Live like Jeremiah did. I think that's what these 
strong Christians are saying. So they're Jeremiah. Embrace our situation. Live in the freedom that we have in Christ. Weak Danielle Christians are saying, this exile is ending soon. Jesus is going to return. He, he is going to soon crush Satan under our feet. And, and when that happens, we'll set aside these ascetic observances because we'll be living in the kingdom that will uh, replace Babylon forever. So how should Christians who take different approaches to life in exile relate to one another? How should the Daniels relate to the Jeremiah's? Should the Daniels judge the Jeremiah's? And should the Jeremiah's look down their nose at the Daniels? No. Instead, they can both adopt their respective practices and live in unity together. So the Jeremiah's need to welcome the Daniels. The Daniels need to not judge the Jeremiah's. This is what Paul is saying when he says, one who eats must not look down on the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat must not judge one who does, because God has accepted him. From God's vantage point, looking at Christians in exile, both ways of living are acceptable. God will, God will receive you. Does this make sense? Okay. Uh, Paul strengthens his argument by recalling the fact that each one of us are God's servants. The Jeremiah's are God's servants, the Daniel's are God's servants, and you shouldn't judge one another's servant. This is lost on us a little bit, but in the ancient world, a master could rape, kill, uh, put to work his servants in any way they wanted, and the state had no say about it. They couldn't judge what that master did. And no one else could judge another person's servants in how they behave. They needed to behave according to their master. And, and Paul's just saying, look, all of you are God's servants. You're, you're not accountable to one another. You're accountable to God. So stop judging one another. That's his whole point as he gets down to verse 10, where he says, well, all stand in judgment, stand before the judgment seat of God. Everyone will stand before God. Everyone will give an account of himself before God. Now, in verse 7, he says, for none of us lives for himself and no one dies for himself. And this is often misinterpreted through uh, the poetry of John Donne, who says that no man is an island unto himself. Donne is saying, you need to adapt the way you live so that you fit the society that you're in, that what you do influences other people. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, you're ultimately accountable to God. So stop looking down your nose at the Daniels and stop judging the Jeremiah's and know that God will judge you both. This is a stern word if you have all of Romans in mind, because if you'll remember in Romans 1 and 2, Paul is saying you are judging one another, sometimes judging, sometimes excusing, but all of you stand condemned before God. Well, here he uses it in the opposite way because now he's talking to Christians. You guys are judging one another and excusing one another, but all of you will stand before God and God will make you stand because he's brought you into Christ. So the strong will stand not because he's strong, but because Christ will cause him to stand. The weak will stand in spite of his weakness because Christ will be his strength before the judgment throne of God. So stop judging one another. Okay, we'll scroll down. Any, any comments, questions up to this point? Okay, now we get into verse 13. So he says, let us no longer judge one another. Instead, decide never to put a stumbling block or pitfall in the way of your brother or sister. This is a word to both groups. Daniels don't require the Jeremiahs to observe Torah. That would be a stumbling block on their way into the kingdom. Jeremiahs don't require the Daniels to stop observing Torah. 
That's another stumbling block. Don't cause people to trip up on their way. He doesn't want them to put a stumbling block or pitfall in front of their brothers or sisters. He doesn't want them to cause spiritual harm. Now we need to dig into this a little bit deeper because these terms are wrongly used almost every time you hear them, I would suggest. A stumbling block refers to two things. Number one, uh, well, this is how most people say it. This is not what it means. Most people would say that a stumbling block means upsetting someone by adopting a particular practice that the other person might disagree with. So if you do something that someone else doesn't like and they get mad at you, you've been a stumbling block to them. That's not a correct interpretation of this text. Some would also say that taking a particular action that someone might use as an excuse to engage in sinful behavior because of their former association with related actions or just because of spiritual weakness, um, if you do something and then someone looks at that and they say, I'm going to go sin, uh, they'll say, you're being a stumbling block. I want to suggest that that's not it either. That would be an impossible way to live because people can turn the best of the gifts of God into sin. That's what we call idolatry. When we take a good thing and we make it God. When we take something that God has granted and we allow that to become our God, that's idolatry. We can do that with anything. So Paul is not talking about either of these two ways of relating. Um, so let me, let me just carefully follow what I wrote here because this is a very important point. Um, Paul is not saying, and I'm quoting someone so you know I'm not making this up, okay? That's a point for footnotes so you know you're not just hearing my ideas. Other people are saying this who are more godly and wise than I am. Paul is not saying that we must refrain from activity that another believer may disagree with. However, if our participation in a particular activity would would unduly pressure another believer to do it as well, we may do well to refrain. Specifically, Christians would do well to refrain from participating in a particular disputed practice in a situation where another believer would be tempted to participate as well against their own convictions. What is more, Christians should not require new converts to adopt certain practices in order to truly belong in the church. Doing so may put a stumbling block on the person's path that is leading to Jesus, causing them to turn aside from Christ altogether. The strong were apparently refusing to offer welcome to the weak. The weak in this case were being unduly pressured to change their behavior, even though they were convinced that to do so would cause them to be unfaithful to God. In this case, they would be choosing human approval over God's approval, succumbing to human judgments rather than God's judgments. Other Jewish Christians, however, when faced with the decision to either follow Christ or to abandon their heritage, may have chosen to abandon Christ instead. So Gentile Christians are saying, get rid of Torah practice to be a real Christian. And they're saying, I can't do that. And they reject Christ altogether. Of course, that's a false dichotomy. Christ isn't requiring that of them. But it seems that the Gentile Christians might have been communicating that to be a Christian meant to abandon all forms of Torah observance. And Christ is telling them, stop communicating. In the modern church, comparable situations would be those in which Christians are pressured into acting in a way that would violate their commitments to God. Although we should be considerate of any Christian we might encounter, Romans emphasizes relationships within a local assembly. So there's no concern for hypothetical situations outside the context of a local church. So they aren't saying, when you're at the supermarket, 
uh, there might be a Christian who walks by you, who happens to see you, and if your way of life would cause them to do some, you know, it's not a hypothetical situation. He's concerned about real people in a real church who you have real relationships with. So genuinely comparable situations, for example, would be an American missionary unduly pressuring recent Jewish converts into eating food that would violate kosher law. That's a genuinely comparable situation. Forced with that decision, those Jewish converts, those recent converts, may either violate the kosher requirements against their convictions, or they might choose their ancestral heritage over Christ. That would be the stumbling block that Paul is speaking of. Somewhat comparable situations might be an adult member of a church pressuring a college student to drink alcohol at a college and career game night, knowing that this student was raised in an alcohol-free home. Faced with this decision, this peer pressure, the student might choose to violate the values instilled in his parents for no reason other than peer pressure, thereby acting against his own convictions. So it would cause him to sin against his own convictions because of peer pressure from the outside. That, that adult should not do that. But neither would I suggest should someone who is against drinking alcohol tell someone who walks into our church who just came to faith by listening to a sermon on the website, who wants to be part of our church, tell them that to be a Christian, you have to stop drinking alcohol. So you see how the opposite requirements are both stumbling blocks in the way that Paul is talking about. As we'll see in verse 14, this does not mean that you keep your practices secret from believers who disagree with you. Paul will explain his own practices. He'll say what he does. So Paul's not saying live privately, but he is saying don't pressure other people. So causing a brother or sister to stumble does not mean disagreeing with them over particular issues. It involves leading them to act contrary to their convictions. Neither does it mean equating participation in a particular activity with tempting another Christian to sin. This is what I've been saying. Mu says this, the weak brother or sister is not someone who has a susceptibility to a particular vice, and Paul does not urge the strong believer to abstain because he is worried that our example may lead that individual to a life of degradation. So it doesn't mean that women at our church need to wear head coverings and dresses that go from the neck down to their ankles because there might be someone who would lust after them. They're, they're not responsible to walk around in a box so that they might not ever tempt someone to lust. That's not what Paul is getting at here. Our concern for others is valid, but that's not what Paul is talking about. In the Western church, well, I've already talked about this. So here, here are the guiding principles the guiding questions that will help you determine whether or not you should participate in a certain disputed matter as you think about your brothers and sisters in the faith. Number one, will my participation put peer pressure on someone who doesn't share my convictions, so much so that they'll violate their convictions and believe that they're dishonoring God by participating in an activity? So it's, it's not, does someone disagree with me, but will my action put enough peer pressure on them that they violate their conviction. More often than not, I think this will take place with new believers and younger people in our assembly. We need to be cautious about what we do so that it doesn't violate what they think they should be doing just because they want to belong with us. We shouldn't exert peer pressure. Number two, will my participation or requirement for other people to participate in something cause them to turn away from Christ? Will this lead them to reject the faith altogether? 
If the answer is yes to either of these questions, the demand of love and selflessness in imitation of Christ might compel you to temporarily abstain from that practice, at least in the presence of that person who would be unduly pressured to conform to your way of living. I want to reiterate that what is at stake is not someone disagreeing with you or getting mad at you. That's not what's going on. What is at stake is the spiritual health of another person. Very often, what we do is we think we're being godly by saying, well, we don't want to make somebody mad, so we will or will not operate in a certain way because of that. And we don't care about their spiritual health at all. And then we run over other people who we actually should be caring about. So I want to redirect our focus to the spiritual health and harm of other people. All right, does this make sense? Okay. Paul will say what his practice is. He says, to me, all things are clean. In, in 1 Corinthians, he says, I become like whoever I'm with. So if I'm with Jews who, like me being an apostle, would overly pressure them to go against their convictions, I'm going to live like they do. But then when I'm with the Gentiles, huzzah, I'll, I'll live like them. Now, someone could accuse Paul of being a hypocrite, but he'd say, no, this isn't hypocrisy. This is love. Isn't it interesting how we can confuse love and hypocrisy all the time? Well, Paul wants people to live according to love. He's not putting a gag order on discussions, okay? He's not saying never talk about this. And, it, and I think that this is instructive for us because this is what happens, I think, in churches like ours. We can say, well, I'm going to keep this between me and God and I'm not going to talk to the person who disagrees with me about it. When that's precisely the person you can talk about with these things, instead you're like, okay, who, who do I feel comfortable um, around like talking about my opinion? And then we unintentionally exert peer pressure on people either to give something up so that they're like us or to take on a practice so that they're like us. Well, Paul isn't giving gag orders. He's calling for us to genuinely care about other people. All right. I can't walk through the rest of this text because time is flying by. You can see why we could spend like a month of classes talking about this category of disputed issues. I'm okay with skipping on a lot of these things. I want to talk about some genuinely comparable situations because my, my argument is that there are very few genuinely comparable situations. There are very few category one issues that we will face directly. So if you scroll down, um, or in your case, flip over um, to some genuinely comparable situations, uh, does anyone see what page that little excursus comes on? 14. Okay. Wait. 26. All right. Page 26. All right. I Okay, so right above that case study on page 26, I list four boxes that you need to check to identify something as a genuinely comparable situation. The main point is God has to have explicitly permitted but not required whatever the issue is. God has never explicitly permitted that you watch Harry Potter, and he's never explicitly prohibited it, so that doesn't count in this issue. That's what I'm trying to say. Check all four of these boxes before you directly apply Romans 14 and 15. But here are two situations that I've imagined. Imagine that a church plant in New York City has taken off. Many former atheists and agnostics have come to faith. One block away, a struggling church plant is meeting, and the respective pastors of these churches meet at a pastor's gathering, and they decide that it might be wise for them to merge their churches, so they decide to have a meet-and-greet dinner. Well, as soon as the dinner starts, the pastors realize that something has gone horribly wrong. 
all of the people from the struggling church plant are in a corner talking amongst themselves, while all of the Christians at the thriving church plant are sitting down and eating together. You immediately realize what's wrong. Most of the members from the struggling church plant were previously committed Jews who had observed kosher food laws their whole life. The well-meaning hospitality director of the larger church had coordinated the meal, and it was served by divine swine caterers. Well, the Jewish Christians are judging the members of the host church for failing to realize that they live in present-day Babylon, New York City of the United States of America, a nation that kills babies in the womb, has outlawed the display of the Ten Commandments in the city square, and is led by godless presidents. Daniel would never eat a meal catered by divine swine caterers. The Christians at the host church, on the other hand, are humiliated that these, church, these people aren't receiving their hospitality. And in fact, they're starting to judge those people for not participating. I think that's about as close of a genuinely comparable situation as I could conjure up in the United States of America. That's what Paul is getting at. And, and there is a strong word for both parties in that situation. Here's a relatively similar situation. Is Kim in here? No, Josh, make sure she reads this because she'll like it based on the names after all of her dogs. Imagine a scenario where a home group member, Elsie, sends out the instructions for the meal. Carl and Maggie are a young couple who just joined the church. They'll be attending the home group for the very first time. When they read the email, they're paralyzed by what they see. They've been assigned the main course, hamburger patties. Carl and Maggie don't know what to do because they're convinced vegetarians. Although they know that God has explicitly permitted, here's one of our big checkboxes, animals for human sustenance, they can't eat meat, they know it, they're convinced that this allowance was only for times when the earth would not produce enough fruits and vegetables to sustain human life. So based on their situation, where there's an economy where you can buy fruits and vegetables year-round, they think we should not eat meat. That's not God's intention for us. On the other hand, they're considering letting their pastors know that they can't join the home group because of its lack of prudence regarding the food that will be served. They're being a bit judgmental towards Elsie and the rest of the group. Uh, on the other hand, they're considering simply purchasing Beyond Meat burger patties, but they don't want to explain the rationale for that decision because whenever they have in the past, they've been the minority on this issue. People look down their noses at them. They feel judged, and they don't feel very welcomed. I'd say in this scenario, it checks almost every box, and Romans 14 and 15 would have a lot to say to both Elsie and her group and Carl and Maggie. Do you, do you see how the genuinely comparable situations, we have to be somewhat restrained in, in what we say about this. Now, there are principles that I've listed coming out of this, but I think most of the scenarios that we can think of don't check the boxes. So we need to wait till the other categories to see if that's the, the, the world we should be operating in. The most popular one that keeps coming up in everything I read and talk about with people is the use of alcohol. I want to say that's a category three issue, for the most part, unless it's motivated by the reason that the Jews in Romans 14 wouldn't drink wine. They weren't saying never drink wine. They're saying while in Rome, don't, you know, while in Rome, don't drink wine. That's their motto. While in Jerusalem, that's fine. You know, it even rhymes. But, but when we talk about it, that's not the way that we're approaching it. Uh, we are dealing with a category three issue there because the Bible does directly address so you, you see what I mean. We have, to, we have to adjust the way we talk about these things based on proper identification of the issue. Um, we're out of time. I hope that this was helpful as we begin our consideration of these other disputed matters. 
Again, I'd encourage you, read through that commentary. I tried to explain every phrase in Romans 14 through 15, 13, so that you'll see how the text backs up everything that I've been arguing. But thank you for your kind attention, and I'll be happy to talk if you'd like to.